Hey everyone, it's Glenn Kaiser from the Dolby Institute, and welcome back to the podcast. We've got something special for you today. A few weeks ago, I was able to have a wonderful conversation with our partners over at Sundance Collab as a live webinar with the film directors Alma Harrell, who made Honey Boy, and Ben Zeitlin, who directed Wendy, and before that, Beasts of the Southern Wild, about their approach to sound design and how they use sound as a creative storytelling tool for independent films. So it was a really fun conversation that we got to have with about 500 people from all around the world uh, as a live webinar. And we had a lot of fun uh, topics that we discussed. So I thought that I would bring this to you as a Dolby Institute podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. I'm Candace Lewis, and I'm the Sundance Collab Community Content Producer, and I am so excited to welcome you from all over the world. As we settle in together, please do take a moment to share in the chat where you're tuning in from today as we prepare for what I know will be another fantastic conversation ahead. But before we get started, it saddens me to have to continue to begin our live events on such a serious note. We do want to take a moment here to pause and reflect on where we find ourselves as artists and as human beings, acknowledging that there's still a lot going on in the world at the moment, socially, politically, and economically, that continues to impact us all during these very complicated and challenging times and on a global scale. We understand that in many ways it is still not business as usual and that we as a humanity are moving through layers of mixed emotions, unrest, and uncertainty. On behalf of the entire Sundance Collab team, we want you to know that we stand on the side of justice and that we are still right alongside you as artists. Okay, so let's get started. You are all in for a real treat. We've partnered with our friends over at the Dolby Institute to bring you today's program. We're taking a deep dive into the world of sound design, specifically exploring how you can use sign design to tell your story, excuse me. We have two incredible films with two incredible filmmakers that will help us navigate our discussion today. We do want this to be an interactive learning experience for you and have saved some time at the end for questions from the audience. So please do use the Q&A box below to submit your burning questions to any one of our panelists and I'll be back later in the conversation to facilitate. So with much excitement, let me introduce you to our panel. Today's conversation will be moderated by Glenn Kaiser. Glenn is the current director of the Dolby Institute. Previously, he was the vice president and general manager of Lucasfilm's Skywalker Sound, where he oversaw sound work on projects such as Avatar, The Incredibles, the Star Wars prequels, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, The Pirates of the Caribbean, and the Harry Potter films. So I know you'll be in great, great hands with Glenn today. And to our esteemed guests today, Alma Harel and Ben Zeitlin. Alma Harel is an award-winning director who works across the documentary, music video, TV commercial, and scriptive narrative spaces. She's also one of the first woman in DGA Awards history to be nominated for both commercial directing and narrative directing. Some of her other film credits include Bombay Beach and Love True. Her most recent film, Honey Boy, the project we'll be focusing on heavily in today's conversation, made her the first woman to win the DGA Award for first time feature film. Honey Boy also won the U.S. Dramatic Special Jury Award for Vision and Craft at the 2019 Sundance Film Festival. Ben Zeitlin is an award-winning writer, director, and composer based in New Orleans. His films include the four-time Oscar-nominated Beasts of the Southern Wild, which also took both the Excellence in Cinematography Award and the Grand Jury Prize in the Dramatic Categories at the 2012 Sundance Film Festival. His other films include the short Glory at Sea and Wendy, the project that we'll be focusing on from him in today's discussion. Ben is also a deep tie to the Sundance Institute as an alum of several of our feature film lab programs. Alma and Ben are also both recipients of the Dolby Institute Fellowship. 
All that said, you all, I am so excited to turn it over to Glenn Kaiser, Almaharel, and Ben Zeitlin, who will lead the way from here. Great. Candace, thank you so much for that uh, really hey. <laughs> amazing introduction. Hi, Alma. Hi, Ben. Hey, everyone. Such a pleasure to be back for everyone. I was just kind of keeping an eye on those uh, chats as they were popping in. It's so inspiring to see everyone checking in from all around the world. What an amazing group of, um, of, of people we have to, to chat with today. So um, I just want to uh, take a second and um, kind of explain how we came together to, to uh, talk with you guys about sound today. Um, as Candace mentioned, and I just want to acknowledge um, my gratitude to Candace and Michelle Satter at the Sundance Institute for welcoming us in and giving us this platform today to talk about why sound design is important for indie movies. Um, because uh, this kind of gets to the reason why we created the Dolby Institute in the first place at Dolby, which is um, I think most often people think of great sound design as something that really belongs to big budget studio tentpole movies, um, you know, that have space battles or dinosaurs or all kinds of craziness going on like that. But one of the reasons we created the Dolby Institute was to really reach out to independent filmmakers with kind of the message that no sound design is really important for any storyteller who wants to take their audience on a journey. Um, and so I'm really excited to have Alma and Ben here um, today talking with us about their films. Both of their films, uh, Honey Boy and Wendy, uh, received the Dolby Institute Fellowship. And uh, this is sort of like, uh, this is kind of the program that is kind of probably most near and dear to my heart that we do at the Institute, uh, because this was a, a program that we created specifically with Sundance um, in 2014. And the idea is, is um, we're, we're, we look for films where the director, the filmmaker is doing something really ambitious in terms of using sound design uh, and music to tell their story, but maybe they don't quite have the resources to execute at the level of, uh, of the vision from a budgetary standpoint. So um, we created the, the, the Dolby Institute Fellowship in 2014, and we've got some really amazing filmmakers that we've supported through it. Uh, we supported Dee Rees with her film Mudbound, uh, Reed Morano with her really amazing movie, uh, I Think We're Alone Now, which not a lot of people got the chance to see. And it's really an, an amazing film. You should definitely take a look at it. Um, Taika Waititi, we, we found him with the, um, uh, 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 the Hunt for the Wilder People was the movie of his that we supported. Um, yeah, really, really fun. And then uh, I think two years ago, three years ago, we, we supported Carlos Lopez Estrada with uh, blind spotting. So it's been a really, really fun group of films and filmmakers that we've gotten a chance to support. And, you know, what we're looking for, like I said, is, is uh, storytellers who are doing something really interesting and ambitious in terms of the way they use sound for storytelling. And I think that you'll agree with me um, that both Alma and Ben are doing something really, really interesting and special uh, with sound design and music uh, for Honey Boy, and uh, of course for Wendy, which received the fellowship this year. Talk to us a little bit about how you, how did you use sound design to, to communicate and also kind of get the audience revved and ready for what's about to come? Um, yeah, I really wanted to, I guess, uh, find a way to, on a very low budget, you know, film, which was shot in like 19 days to communicate like this whole world of Hollywood that this, um, 
I guess, high budget films that this person is completely lost in and, and kind of gotten to a place where he almost doesn't know what's reality anymore, in a sense. Um, and really, when you have such a low budget, um, a lot of times the best and easiest way to do it, or the most effective way, I should say, and creative ways to do it by using the sound of what's outside of the frame, uh, which you can't afford to film, and really the opening itself, like the you know Transformers set, I knew that you could probably have like one big shot, but I can't have like a whole war scene and like things flying in the air and robots shooting at him and all of that had to be kind of um, imagined by the viewer and uh, created in sound. And as, as you well know, uh, that wouldn't have been possible without the scholarship and um, having that Atmos sound and being able to kind of give the sound um, physical space and make you really feel, even when you see it like this, I, I don't know if I can, if I just imagine it, cause I know how it sounds in Atmos already or if it's really there, but I just, feel like it's you kind of feel like you know he's surrounded by a lot more than than we can see and that was really helpful in um in creating you know that experience for him i guess as, a, as an actor that's lost in that world yeah so for those of you who might not be familiar what um what alma's talking about um is dolby atmos which is a sound format that we created several years ago um, and it, it basically it moves beyond channels so you're able to think about sound as individual objects that you can place around the theater in a 3D space and it just allows you to get a lot more detailed with a lot more clarity about where to place sounds and, and how to envelop the the audience and so that that's part of the Dolby Fellowship too is, which is the ability to to mix and, and deliver in, in Dolby Atmos but Alma I really appreciated you talking about one of the things I love to, to listen to and talk with filmmakers about is how they use sound for the world outside the frame. Yeah. And the reason why, you know, I love that clip so much, but even like the way you, cho you chose to, to make the car crash sequence, mm -hmm. you know, it's pretty, it's jarring and it's horrific, but you shot it all in close up. We never see the outside of the car. Yeah. And, and then you, you even add more car, like you add more car crashes that we hear so we get the we understand that it's like a he triggered like a six car pileup but we don't have to see any of that yeah i mean i think there's two things that it does obviously like we said it's very economical and it helps you kind of tell a story without showing without seeing it and um having um natasha Breyer, who shot the film and worked with me on this was on top of being aware that that would be like, you know, our, our ability to tell the story, it was also really important for me to create that very subjective, you know, kind of intimate sense of being lost in, in that world. Um, and seeing the car accident only from the inside of the car, as opposed to, you know, we had two cars and we could have, we had another flipped car. We could have kind of, we could have maybe, um, create some illusion that there was, you know, an accident and show some shots from the outside, but it just seemed like it would go against the feeling of really being inside the experience as opposed to watching it unfold from the outside. And um, yeah, so I think like things like you say, like, you know, when, when he's already landed after the car crash to hear the other cars that are 
crashing into each other, to hear the police arriving, to hear all of those things, but actually not see them uh, and stay on him and his feelings within it. Um, I feel it's kind of, in a way, I've, I've unfortunately been to four pretty serious car accidents. Um, I wasn't driving in any of them. I was, I was driving in one actually. Um, and really it's such a, it's such an, it's such a subjective experience because you are in the car. You're not aware mm -hmm. of the people that are losing control of their cars and crushing into you and how it looks from the outside. You just kind of, you know, you just experience it. And it's, it's such a thing to come out of a car after a car accident and assess your body and assess the reality that you're now in. And I really wanted to kind of capture that. And the sound was the most helpful, I would say, other than, of course, Natasha's cinematography and Lucas's performance. And um, yeah, but it was, and Micah who was there, but it was, it was just the sound allowed us in post and the, the VFX that we did afterwards. Um, same with the opening shot to kind of paint with sound and visual effects over something that was very subjective and small and kind of give it some scope. Well, and I love, you know, you started telling your story from the, op the opening logos, like you're putting war sounds in there. You are, you're, you're telling the audience that you're going to take them on quite a, on quite a journey. And I, I, I really appreciate what you just said about the car crash and shooting that in close up. And one of the things that I think that you accomplish in that first 10 minutes, that's so powerful, uh, from a sound design perspective is the way you shot it. You really communicate that you're, you're going to be experiencing this. You're going to be experiencing this story subjectively from the point of view of Otis, the main character. Mm -hmm. And you really use sound very, it, one of my favorite ways to use sound is to give the audience the subjective experience that the character is having. And right. I think that's a really powerful tool. Um, and then the other thing, another thing that you did in that first few minutes is you also just set up that this is nonlinear. You know, you're going to be moving back and forth in timeline. There are going right. to be flashbacks. And so that also creates great opportunities for sound. Because I always feel like, um, you know, there's the, the legend of the like masterful uh, filmmaker who kind of um, knows everything in advance and has these amazing storyboards and kind of knows every shot and he's to be admired and worshipped for his vision. And I'm definitely not one of those filmmakers. Like I, I, I never studied filmmaking. I, you know, hardly ever stick to my original plans in the edit. And honestly, that whole sequence was found in the edit like a week before we locked the film. I was kind of like, you know, I don't feel like we get it still. And it was like a montage that was supposed to be like halfway through the film at some point in a flashback. And I was like, I'm going to sit down and I just sit down and put like earphones and cut it for like a few hours. And it suddenly solved for me the whole opening. Um, and also I think kind of a parallel between the extreme emotional battlefield that he experienced as a kid and the need to, um, somebody wrote battlefield to, to recreate that, um, to kind of, you know, really recreate the, this idea that when you are growing up with a sense of chaos or a sense of trauma or a sense of, you know, um, sort of lack of boundaries, you tend to search for it all the time in, in your 20s, um, I think mm -hmm. in your 30s. And 
uh, hopefully you, you kind of at some point grow out of it, but like you really are like a detective that is lost in like some repetitious kind of cycle. Um, and you kind of have to go back and find the clues as to mm. made you addicted to that cycle. And I wanted to sort of give you that feeling that this person is just so immersed in this cycle of, of you know, having set life be the life that the only life he knows and at the mm. same time this kind of battlefield so um yeah. yeah sound was like a way to do that in every shot in a different way and we used so many things that are i just saw wendy the other day and i was like oh the amount of subconsciously like details that are communicated through the sound is is, is endless and i think like sometimes the experience you have at the end you're not aware of like all the little ticking clocks and, and toys and things that you put in because like him flying back on the on the you know um what do you call that the harness yeah. i always really wanted to communicate this idea that he's like pinocchio you know that he's like being mm. puppeteered by you know his father you know the industry and he's he just wants to be a real boy you know he just wants to get off the 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 marionette and like have a real life and be a real boy and trust himself as a person um and not just see himself as an actor and a liar um and yeah. that really helped by all the all the sounds that we put in of like marionettes and cables and things like that and it became kind of a theme in our music too so yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely. I want to. We'll we'll talk a little bit about kind of the interplay of sound design and music. But I, as we're talking, I just really realized for the first time how important the perspective of the child is for both of you guys in in both of your films. And so I, I just wanted to ask you, Ben, like, wh how did you use the sound design of the train to kind of at the very beginning of the movie set a tone and expectation for the audience that this is kind of a magical world that you're going to be experiencing from a child's perspective? Um, yeah, you know, the, we always sort of, the, the movie is very much about Wendy's point of view. You're very much experiencing the world that she wants there to be as opposed to the world that is at all times. And, and um, you know, I think that we were setting up this girl who has this incredible, uh, you know, attraction to adventure and to, um, to something bigger than the sort of mundane reality that she lives in. And so everything that she... When we're in moments in the film like this one where we're very much in her head and you're kind of seeing a blend of what um, is really happening, what she's imagining is happening. We try to kind of always sound design like what a child would want to hear, you know, like the drama that she wants to exist. And, you know, the, and, and for her, you know, the this comes to play later in the film, but she, you know, it's this little girl who like grows up with this train, you know, just in her backyard and, and it, uh, for her, it's um, it's like this portal, you know? It's like, where does it go? It's like, well, this is the thing that could take her to a far away unknown place. And it, and it has this, um, and it also is the thing that sort of uh, took away this little boy that uh, you see jump on the train that in, her, in her early childhood who jumped on this train and never came back. And so she has this sort of world of um, imagination around it. And so we wanted the train to, um, to really be speaking to her, you know? And so we thought a lot about you know, it kind, of, like, it kind of calls to her, doesn't it? Yeah, and she's like, she both summons it and then it talks to her, you know, and it's like, 
you know, and, and it it's the voice in her head telling her, you know, I think this came out of the film, but it, you, there was early on, um, Peter would like whisper, jump on the train. And she would hear jump on the train, jump on the train. And she's like, where is that voice? But we thought that was too literal. And so you just kind of hear his laughter a little bit. And then we thought about the language of a train trying to tell a kid, jump on the train, get on, like, you know, you want to, you know, so it's very kind of like sneaky. Um, and we're mixing all these sorts. I mean, a lot of it is real train sounds. We mix a lot of different types of trains. And one thing that I always, this I actually just discovered in the train yard where we shot the film is those like electrical currents that run, that sort of when a train idles and they're testing brake, they're testing the brakes and there's all these like zips and zaps and like totally, they sound like, um, they remind me of uh, when you when you hear um, uh, like seals through ice, you know, you, like when you watch like an Antarctica documentary, like the sounds of animals calling to each other under the water sound a lot like those train currents. And then of course we have this underwater creature that comes in later in the film. And so we really wanted to uh, set up that whole thing and this idea that Wendy sort of longs for a giant creature that leads her into uh, adventure, which which the train followed by the mother later in the film. We wanted all those things to uh, to be of one language, you know, that, she, that only she understands and that she would have to translate to the audience. We, we mm-hmm. got, that, that was also an important idea that like, this movie isn't, re- you know, it's it's a movie that kids can watch, but it's, it's for adults to experience, re-experience these moments in life through a child. And 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 you, I find that as you grow up, like you lose these languages that you have as a kid. Like you, you literally can understand plants and animals and things that everyone's telling you are false when you're young. And then because you keep on hearing that they're false, you then forget how to speak those languages. And so we like this idea that Wendy has access to a language that uh, that the audience does not, and that being sort of spoken by the the train in this moment. That is, I'm just sitting here thinking about that. My mind's blown. I, I'd never thought about Wendy that way before. That's, that's really amazing. Um, I think that one of the other main things, Ben, that you're accomplishing in this first sequence is um, this is just a kick-ass score. Like, this music is amazing. And you're, you, you co-composed. So I'm kind of curious to, you know, your, your background in music as a performer and also a comp- as a composer, how does that affect your approach and your thinking about sound design? Um, well, it's very integrated from the very beginning. You know, I think that just knowing that, like having a really involved sense of what information is going to come in, in the music, like as you shoot, as you write, you know, um, you know, that, you know, I, I think similarly to, to sound design, you know, score for me is always much character driven, you know, it's really always supposed to be, you know, I also think about being a kid. <laughs> I mean, obviously I think about that a lot in general, but, uh, or am that, uh, but, uh, you know, when I was a little kid, um, I always was scoring my life, you know, when I would be like holding my mom's hand, walking down the sidewalk, I would be in some race with somebody and there would be like an action score happening, you know, and I just remember these huge themes, like whatever it is, Batman theme song, like that stuff just being a presence in the most mundane situations. And so, you know, um, I think from the outset, knowing that the score was gonna message what Wendy was like, how Wendy would score her own experience, um, is just a lot of information that you know doesn't need to be spoken, doesn't need to be said. It's always kind of like 
there's always a little bit of a disconnect, I think, between what you're seeing and what the score is telling you to feel, you know, which is an important thing for me. It's never like, oh, this is an evil character. Let's make an evil theme. It's They shouldn't be doing Wendy. the same thing, right? Exactly. Yeah. So it's like for Wendy, you know, you know, the, so that, I mean, like for just for that example, like that footage on the train is so dangerous. You know, you're looking at something that's just absolutely irresponsible that this footage exists. Um, and the score is just like, yeah, this is awesome. You know what I mean? And it, it lets you know how the film feels, how Wendy feels about danger, which is yeah. that danger is fun. You know, at least at this point in the, in the film, like for her jumping on a train, riding across the country, hanging off the side of the train with the camera, yeah. that's fun, you know, and that's joy and that's freedom, you know? And so, and so we wanted to, the score there is a couple things, but we really looked at like, pioneering themes you know we wanted and we have this one sounded that we always thought of as like the whip cracking as like the horses go off into the, you know we wanted to look at these kind of like national anthem not national anthem but more like striking off into the unknown and so i think that was an idea just like making sure you knew that uh running away for this character means freedom you know in right. a very visceral right. way um and i think also just like like you're saying it's like the early moments of a film the audience is learning how to engage, you know, you learn whether you're allowed to laugh, you learn whether you're going to get scared, you know, you learn, you, you build a set of expectations for what the language of the film is and what you're allowed to do. And we wanted this film to be like, you're allowed to like get on the dance floor. It's like, you're not allowed to stand on the wall. Like you have to come and get <laughs> in there and pump your fist. So we wanted the, that first piece of music to just have all this visceral momentum, um, and uh, it's like whoever wants to jump on the train, jump on the train now. And if you don't want to, like, we're going to leave you behind. This may not be the movie for you if you don't want to jump on the train. <laughs> I love that. Hey, I think before we get into the next clip, I just wanted to ask both of you, I think for a lot of, of directors, especially as they're first starting out, and I, I want to ask this because I, I know we've got a lot of directors in the audience listening today. I think it's really hard for them sometimes to talk with their with their sound editors and their sound designers because we don't really have the great vocabulary for how to talk about sound. So I wanted to ask both of you, how do you, how do you get started with your sound teams and what are you looking for when you hire a sound uh, designer, a sound editor, and how do you engage them creatively? Do you want to start, Glenn? Oh, okay. Glenn, you know our sound designer's name. I do, Brent Kaiser, no relation to me, I might add. Right, uh, yeah, Brent Kaiser, who uh, was like such a gift for this film and did the sound for us, um, was somebody that I just kind of spotted his work. I didn't know him before. Um, I mean, I let, me, let, me, let me interrupt you, Alma, for one second. Brent is the only person to win the Dolby Institute Fellowship twice because he also did the sound design for Swiss Army Man which for the Daniels, for Daniel Shiner and Daniel Kwan, which is amazing. Which was so amazing and had like every fart just had its own, <laughs> its own wetness. It was just really, it can't be more accurate than that. Um, yeah, so he did, you know, that movie, which I thought was phenomenal sound-wise, as well as the music and the orchestra and everything that was happening in it and felt very kind of handmade and organic and things that I really like to feel from, from sound and from anything really. Um, and I met him once at this party uh, that 
uh, the screening that Flying Lotus, uh, Steve made a film called Kuso, which was like a horror, hardcore kind of body horror, imaginative, psychedelic experience um, that only Flylo can can make. And I uh, I met him there and just sort of um, you know wanted him to do it and and asked him if he would take this mission on and that was before we had the grant so it seemed a bit impossible but he was down for the cause um yeah and then you know the rest is history because of uh because of the help we got from you guys but it was really an uphill battle at first and i think that um in terms of language just to say that i don't know like i said i i never studied film and a lot of times people like throw things at me now over time i kind of know more expressions and and what to ask for but i think people should feel really comfortable to just ask for what they want to hear and use their own words and if you work with an artist and who's who's a friend who's uh, friendly to you i don't mean like you have to have a long friendship but just that is um a friend at heart then they would um they would try to understand you you know and they and you would find your language together um a lot of the things that i emphasize when i make sound when i do sound like i often really want to have a certain texture to the sound or i want to have a really certain um spatial kind of feeling where i could like feel where it is in the space or the relationship between different sounds, the relationship to silence is actually really important to me. And I feel like silence is one of the strongest sounds we have. Um, so all of those things are things you need to kind of develop um, a language for anyway. I mean, you could like kind of use cliches and use, you know, uh, big words, but sometimes just really trying to be actually accurate and personal and explaining what it is you're trying to hear yeah. Um, it's the best way anyway. So, you know, people should be empowered to just kind of speak from the heart about what they're looking to hear. That's great. Ben, you want to take that one? Sure. Um, <clears throat> yeah. you know, I, I also had a great sound team, um, Rui Garcia and Martin Chembor, uh, who was the mixer. Um, and, oh, uh, awesome, you know, yeah, he's awesome. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that, I don't know, when you, for, for me, it's, I, I'm asking a huge amount for my sound team. Half of the sound I come in to the room with is ruined. I'm talking all over it. We're shooting in locations. Wow. Yeah. You know, like we ADR 70% of the film, you know, there's like, there's this like gigantic amount of work. And so I, that's like and, a starting place, you know? Well, let me, let me ask, is, is that because, I mean, obviously you're working with kids and, and most of your kids are non-professional, right? So is, are you, yeah. you're, you're talking them through the takes while the cameras are rolling. So that's why your production tracks are usually wrecked. Yeah. Or we're shooting in the train yard or we're shooting by the ocean or there's helicopters because we have to be evacuated within 10 minutes if the volcano becomes active, you know, like there's <laughs> all this stuff. Uh, and, and a lot of times I, sounds the first thing to go just to make sure you get we I'm always like in a panic just making sure I get my images because that's what I absolutely have to walk away with and I'm totally responsible often about not collecting the sound I need so a lot of it's built from scratch you know and and um and I think a lot of it's very poetic you know so I'm looking for that in a designer who do, who isn't going to be you know it's like sometimes someone's talking and you don't and I don't want to hear anything coming out of their mouth or the sound of a cup coming down is not going to be that, you know, so who's able to sort of 
not just look literally at the screen and say, well, I'm going to put in what I see, you know, it's, it's a much more expressive process. And I think that in terms of like how you communicate with a designer, whether it's, you know, I think with a cinematographer or an actor, or, um, you know, it can be very emotional. Like you don't need to know, you don't need to know all the terminology or be prepared with exactly what sort of punch you like more than another one. It's like, you can talk about feelings that you want to feel. Um, and, and, and oftentimes you get the best work when you're not micromanaging, uh, exactly what something should sound like. And you're just telling someone what something should feel like. Um, and, and the other thing that I think is really kind of key to know is like similar to, I mean, I think, I just think we, we understand like visual language better than sound language sometimes, but it's the same as like a lens pulling focus, you know, there's like a foreground and a background to every moment and it's always changing and, and to know what the foreground of your scene is, you know, what are you really paying attention to? What's really important. And then what's in the background, a lot of sound. Yeah. Comes I like, into that like, conversation. I always like to say that it's like perfume where you have like the notes, you know, of the smell <laughs> and like, there's like the bass and right. There's like the notes yeah. that are on the top and like, it's yeah. kind of similar where you want to make sure when you smell it, that you don't have like, you're not overpowered by some, yeah. You know, lemony thing that's supposed to be in the base <laughs> like exactly. but yeah there's like um when i made my first film which was like a documentary film called bombay beach and it was uh with music by zach condon um and bob dylan and which was a big part of the soundtrack but also on the ground itself i was like with a small camera and i didn't have any sound uh person so i was just recording everything with like these two love mics and when I finished it, um, I uh, showed it like, you know, as part of a lot of stuff that I was doing, uh, I got to show I got to show it to Werner Herzog, who was like a, a hero of mine for years. Uh, and I was like, so, uh, you know, nervous, I guess, to show it to him. And he saw it and then he he, you know, he called me up afterwards and he said, it's a great film, but it's not gonna go anywhere because of the sound. And like you have no terrible sound. I always say to my students, get the sound right. It's the most important thing. And I was like, holy shit! Like that's not what I wanted to hear. But and then I kind of met this guy named Moret, um, who um, Mohar, who was a sound guy that I knew from uh, back in Israel. He and he lived here at the time. He's now like super famous and does like giant films. And uh, and at the time he was like, come in like at night to my sound studio and we'll just like fix the sound. And he went with me over there with a mic and we recorded all these sounds of the whole place and kind of reconstructed literally the whole mm. film, which was kind of ruined, like Ben called it before, like kind of ruined from all these like trains and, you know, and all sorts of sounds. So it is possible to salvage something if you have um, people that are willing to do the work with you. Work, yeah. yeah, I think well, it's a large mistake because there's so many filmmakers that can't afford good sound recording, you know, and Ben, bless your soul, you're just like a huge adventurer. Um, so I can't imagine even when you have, the, even when you had the, you know, the capabilities to to probably get good sound, you preferred to be on a on an island with a volcano. That's that's a that's a personality. Uh, but for people that 
just dream about some, you know, clinical set and just can't afford it, um, they should know that they could still fix what they do later on. Yeah, it, when, Alma, when you said that, it reminded me of one of my favorite um, kind of quotes from uh, from Walter Murch, and I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna mangle it, but he basically said like we've we've trained audiences for the past forty years to accept mixing and matching film stocks, mixing video with film. 16 millimeter degrading image that's that's a they accept that as an artistic choice and a, and a valid way to express yourself as an artist but if you give an audience bad sound they presume that you're technically incompetent and you have no idea what you're doing as, as an artist well sound is important though in terms of like there's a level to that you want people to understand what is being said right that's unless it's really part of your of your world it could be a texture right. i don't know i mean i guess ben you should probably and sir, how you feel about that? So, because I think I, I know my films have, I take that freedom to have all sorts of kinds of sound. I mean, my first film even had subtitles at a few places where you couldn't understand what people were saying. Um, but yeah, Ben, I mean, I think like you worked with like probably some of the best teams on Wendy. Um, <laughs> I imagine that. I don't know why I imagine that. Maybe because it's so impressive and. And I'm wrong, but I mean it was very, you know, <laughs> like you couldn't get a lot of people to the places that we were going. So it was yeah. a bit of like a self-selecting, like like every person who was on set had to be accounted for. It was like an expedition, you know, you had to figure out how to get them and their gear there. And so it actually wasn't like an ex it was very small on set oftentimes, you know. Um every person is like a da Vinci, like can do like six things <laughs> the best. Like I love it. Yeah, that. it had to be a little bit like that. Um and, uh, you know, and, and, and it was, you know, the film spanned different islands and we were in Mexico or in Louisiana. So there's a lot of different people recording sound in a lot of different ways. And it was a job to integrate everyone's approach um, at the end. But, you know, uh, I think I'm always, you know, for me, it's like, especially with dialogue and especially with, um, I think I have more stories about this from the first film probably, um, but like, one thing that happened for us was you know, the, the voiceover from um, this was true in both films, but in, especially in, in, in Beast, the voiceover from Quibenjane Wallace, who played Hush Puppy, uh, she grew up so much over the course of over, over how long it took us to shoot the film that there were certain things that she said in like rehearsal takes of VO that she just would never say with the same innocence. Like it just didn't have the same quality. Same with Yashua, who played Peter in this film. He had this like squealing, piercing laugh when he was around six and seven years old that disappeared and he couldn't recreate it when he was nine. Yeah. And so we had to go through every single inch of our footage to pull enough of these laughs to, cause we really, this laugh was going to be really important to kind of yeah. put his character together because he didn't like to smile on screen for some reason. It was very hard to get him to like, for whatever reason. So a lot of times in order to like make him to bring out his joy, we had to kind of find these laughs from all over the place. And, you know, cause I couldn't, everything else I get ADR, but that one thing he couldn't do. So even if it was recorded badly or off mic, you yeah. know, you put the time in to salvage these little bits of audio that were. But that's also, that's also really kind of important to say that the performance is always more important than the quality of the sound, you know, like, yeah. I, and I had two, things that happened. One was like uh, Noah Jupe, who was like 12 when we, you know, filmed it. And literally a year later, not less than a year, like, I mean, we made this whole film in a year. 
uh, so just like a few months after we finished, um, probably five months, and his voice changed. It was just like totally different voice. And we had a few places where Shia and him were overlapping on each other. And uh, because of the way we shot it, we did a lot of things where like we had them talk together and like go over each other and improvise. And and I brought uh, Noah to, to do some ADR for, for some stuff. And I was like, oh, I can't. I 100% can't use that. Like, that's just like a totally different kid. He's like a teenager now. Um, and so I kept, you know, the dirty sound with original performance. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll bring Shia and he'll do the ADR. And that would help clean it. And then Shia came uh. he was like, I'm never doing this fucking shit. Like, my original performance from that moment was so good and anything I would do now would just be just for sound so both of them didn't want to do ADR for different reasons and um, you know and we just kept it and like I I can I can still hear it sometimes like at the beginning I could still hear it but like I I, I didn't care because the performance was just so yeah. so good and so much better so it's really you know performance first i think in, in some in some cases one of my favorites one of my favorite stories about that we were we were doing the sound for paul thomas anderson on punch drunk love and wow. there was a there's a there was a sequence where um Barry, a, Barry, i have to just say that when i saw that movie i realized the importance of sound right I remember sitting in the theater when i saw that movie and saying wow you can do so much cool shit with sound yeah. And obviously so many movies have done it before, but that movie somehow made me realize it. So there was a, there was a, there was a specific scene that I was thinking about Barry Egan, um, who's played by Adam Sandler, um, kind of loses his shit in a, in a bathroom in a, yeah. in a restaurant Great. and he just trashes the whole yeah. bathroom. And the production track was just, um, just his, his wireless lob mic that they had wired him up with and it overmodulated. Everything was hyper distorted. Like it was just, it was horrible. And of course the sound team comes in and the Foley team recreates everything. They clean everything up. It's all pristine. And, you know, you know, it's, it's chaotic obviously, but they, you know, made it all presentable and, and wonderful. And Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, heard it and was like, what the hell did you do? Like, right. it has no soul now. Yeah. So what's in, what's in the movie is the distorted wireless lob, you know, that's, yeah. that's what took you there. It's what took you there emotionally. Right. Yes. Yeah, and like also just the rage and the anger and the frustration of an actor in that moment, I spiritually believe is in the sound, you know? It's just like yeah. inherent to the to what you see. And then like when you try to recreate it so many times, it sounds removed, like, yeah. You know? And I'm seeing that P.T. Anderson's birthday today, is that true? Oh, is that true? That's Happy amazing. Birthday. Well, Alma, I wanted to ask you, um, so, do you approach sound differently uh, for a narrative film as opposed to a documentary uh, for, in terms of sound design or is it sort of the same thing for you? I mean, um, I mean, I want to like, you know, acknowledge the beautiful man that is Oscar Grau who was recording the sound um, on my film and um, really say that you know, the work that he did uh, under not easy circumstances because we, the way we wanted to shoot this film never almost allowed him to be in the room. Um, mm. So he had to like really gadget the place with some stuff to try and- you're, you're talking about your production sound recordist on Honey Boy? Yeah. Okay. 
But um, I mean, the biggest difference for me is just on, in the field. I would say that in post, like, you know, in the mix, um, I, I actually treat them the same. I would say like, I would have loved to have a Dolby Grant on Bombay Beach, but I kind of <laughs> kind of got all that love from, from Drol, who was just so generous with us and gave, it, gave us his time. But um, yeah, I treat it the same, I guess, in the mix in a way. But uh, but on the field, it's different because nobody comes in and says, there's a train, we got to do this take again and things like that. Or like, you know, and just there isn't that sort of fear that I feel like there's a lot of fear on film sets because definitely not coming from me, I think. But like, I just think people really want to perform. They really want to give you everything you need. They're very passionate about getting their part right. And that, that's when you know you have a good team because every person is just fighting for their own thing to make sure they did the best they can. Right. Um, but sometimes, you know, like for people that prefer the moment over any technicality, um, it can be challenging to convince script supervisors and sound people that it doesn't matter right now, like that what matters now is that the actors will stay open hearted, you know, um, and so, get the performance and get the performance. And that's something you don't need to fight for in a documentary. Um, cause usually I'm alone. So, you know, it's different. Alone. That's a good point. Yeah. I'm just, I'm noticing as the chat's been going by, there's a lot of screenplay writers, uh, who are, who are listening in and, for both of you, what would you say to, to people who are writing scripts, and Ben, obviously you write, um, what would you encourage them to think about in terms of sound as they're, from the very beginning of the process, as they're writing their scripts? Um, I mean, it's, it should be, I don't know, it should be in your imagination and it should be on the page, or at least the way that I do it, especially in a film like Wendy. Um, you know, the, a lot of the most involved descriptions were sound descriptions. Um, really? As we had this, um, you know, this is sort of similar to what um, Amal was saying, just in terms of like telling the story that we don't see. And the whole mythology of this island is based, was based on this creature, the mother that lives at the, underneath a volcano. And, and she comes into the film quite late and it's like a total break in the language of the film. And in order for you to accept that, you really had to already feel like you knew who she was uh, before. And so all these sounds uh, that uh, were being sort of communicated by the volcano often all had to feel like communicative with the characters and like a language. And then they had to, when you saw the source, which is this underwater creature, there had to be a feeling of like, ah, that's who it was. That's who I was hearing this whole time. She had to feel familiar in that kind of way. So you know, there's just, there was quite a lot of like page real estate devoted to like exactly what, you know, I remember the world, like, you know, Wendy says this, the volcano makes a happy chortle, you know, what, like, what does that mean? You know, what does that sound like? I, I'm not sure I knew, but we knew that there was this communication between inanimate objects, nature, you know, um, what the, what the feeling of each of these different radically different landscapes always you know, there's like a visual and a, and a sonic component that I always try to have a vision of before I walk into it um, because it, because it's information, you know, um, which sounds really technical, but like, I wanted to say this before, actually, when you, right before you brought up merch, I was going to crib another Walter merch quote that I, that I, we, we have to, we, we have to pay homage to Walter. Yes. Um, but he, I got, he did this lecture that I was at um, where he talks about how 
there's like some study that the human brain can intake about 2.6 things at any given moment and that's it. And basically the idea that he's talking about in sound is like you always have two main different things that you're hearing and then like half of one other one. Um, but, but I think it applies to everything, you know, it's like if, if you're watching a movie and there's less than 2.6 things happening, you're bored. If there's more than 2.6 things happening, you're confused. Um, and I think it's a really great way to think about same thing with foreground and background of like, you know, we, so we, we come out into this desert. It's like, I'm hearing emptiness, you know, the feeling of emptiness is like a, is a major, is a, is a big feeling here. And then the feeling of the sadness of this character. And so what does that translate in sound? It's like cold feeling wind and these like really solitary footsteps. Um, and then maybe deep in the background, we also want to know we're near the volcano. So we hear that a little bit too. And those are my 2.5 things or whatever. So I always try to think about like, is there enough going on here in my sonic imagination and visual imagination in the story and the music? Like, is there just enough that we're just able to understand and just able to keep up and are going to be drawn in and engaged? And, you know, you can put that on the page and it really helps you know what know what not to write in dialogue because no one needs to say they're lonely if they sound lonely um and uh you know and it, and it helps you on set be like oh we should really get some footsteps on, on little rocks on these specific little rocks because i know that that's what we're gonna need to feel to, to communicate how this this character is emotionally experiencing the scene so you know it's yeah. great to it's great to use to, to not ignore that in your imagination as you as you synthesize these moments and scenes yeah well, uh, another thing that ben, that uh, that Walter says is um, uh, he talks about sound as the back door that information comes to the viewer, <laughs> as opposed to image being the front door coming in through the eyes, and and as a result, the audience will accept a level of abstraction in the sound design that is way far beyond what you kind of typically think you could get away with as a filmmaker, mm-hmm. and so that opens up all sorts of interesting possibilities. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're at the uh, we're at the one hour mark, which I, I think we it means we need to uh, bring Candace back and go into some questions. Uh, I wanted to just ask if everybody here knows who Walter March is, because there's so many people here from around the world. Um, so just wanted to make sure. Okay, because I I definitely had to Google it. Um, amazing. Yes. Walter Murch, yeah. Look him up on Wikipedia. Re, re, uh, he's got. He's written some great books, like In the Blink of an Eye, about film editing. I don't know, though. He did Apocalypse Now and The Godfather, and um, he did like uh, um, the first film that uh, George Lucas did, which I can't remember. He and George were classmates at USC. Yes, so he did the sound design for uh, THX eleven thirty eight. And I'll just give a, a, a plug for. There's a wonderful documentary that just came out last year that focuses on Walter and Ben Burt and Gary Rydstrom oh, wow. uh, about sound design and films. It's called Making Waves. Okay. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's uh, directed by uh, Midge Costin. It's a really wonderful documentary that everyone should check out um, when they get a chance. So um, Candace, do you want to come back and kind of lead us through Q&A? Hey, that was fantastic. Thanks, you guys. We've gotten a lot of questions in the Q&A. So unfortunately, I'm sorry, we won't get to everybody. 
um, today, but um, we'll pick some of the ones that I think will be beneficial to everybody and at different ways, and we can see if we hit a lot of talking points there. So we'll start with Samuel's question. Uh, Samuel asks, as a student filmmaker, I've noticed that the sound design and edit isn't treated with the same importance as some of the other areas of production, and I certainly remember that from film school. I did one sound design class. Uh, um, so what would you recommend to do or say to get fellow student filmmakers, and I mean, I think filmmakers in general, to just really take sound design and edit seriously? Ben, Alma, um, you want to take think, that one? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I think you gotta do it yourself, <laughs> I hate to say. But like, I really think that when you're, you know, when you're, when I was making films as a student and all my shorts, you know, like there's never any money to pay anybody and, and it benefits you so immensely to learn all the corners of the process. Um, and, you know, yeah, I just, I just remember how it, it served me so well later to have, to know how to basically function in these programs and basically know how Foley and things like that work. I, I like remember being at, um, in Park City, I had a, like an animated film in Slamdance and being in the hotel room and foleying the footsteps of like a living light bulb, like in the hotel room the night before the premiere, had a, something to get it onto a tape and then go in the show. You know, it's like that, just learning that stuff. And, and you know, when you're, when you're making short films, like you have yourself, you know, and you have, you have the time because you don't have external pressure and you can just sink hours and hours of your life into, into fleshing out um, stuff like that, that, um, you know, becomes weirdly less in your control later. And, but it's so helpful to know it all. So I don't know, I, it, it always, it's always, sounds always been a huge thing for me. And, but I remember early on, I, I just had to do it myself because it, it's true. It is just, it's not as flashy, um, as the other parts of the process and, and it gets overlooked, but you know, for, for the, for the filmmakers, you know, you, you've got to sometimes compensate for that yourself. Alma, did you have anything to add? If not, I have oh, a I, I totally agree. Like, I think, like, the... I, I also came from, like, this background of just, like, doing things myself, and I don't know, now when you can edit everything on your laptop, which is how I edited my first film was on, on laptops, you know? So it was just, like, doing everything and recording things really gives you a lot of insight. Ben also is very lucky to be making his own music in some of his films which is another huge gift um i have to like kind of sit like a pest on the couch in the back and, and say i know i'm not a musician but i think we really need uh <laughs> this, and this in this moment and uh alex somers that did the music for us was uh, and zach shields were very patient with my non-musician authority in the room every day um but yeah, I think like just being there in the room with musicians, with sound people, learning all the time and doing things yourself before that. Um, so you can, you know, so you know better what it is that you need. Um, some people learn very well from theory and watch documentaries and feel very much like they know things. I really like have to do it myself in order to kind of absorb knowledge. I, I would just say, like, I'm watching these chats kind of go by. I'm seeing a lot of people say, hey, I'm a sound designer. Like, you guys should all be, you know, meeting up and, 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 and working together on things. And I, I would just say, um, you know, as you start to, as you continue on in your career and, and you start making films, 
think of the sound designer almost the way you think of the cinematographer. Like this is somebody that you should be hiring before you go shoot the film. Mm. Um, and you know, not that they have to work on the film the whole time, but but you should find that person that you click with and and let them read the script and talk with them about the film. And they may suggest a different way of shooting a scene um, that would open up sound design possibilities that yep. you might not have thought about, right? So this is actually a really good segue to Mito's question. And so he asks, you know, I'm curious about the language, verbal and otherwise, that you would use to communicate your vision to the sound designer or editor. What tools of communication do you use? References, soundboards, metaphors? How are you guys kind of communicating with your, your sound teams? I, I kind of said it before, I use all of those. I mean, I guess I, I use everything, anything that can help me communicate what I need to say and get to where I need to go. Whatever gets you through the night is my <laughs> my theory and everything, so yeah. Do you, also, do you also reference other films? That you that you like the sound of? Um, I kind of hate doing that, honestly. Like I, I don't know. I you, I, you don't want to pen them in. <laughs> yeah, I was like always when people are like, "This film, it's gonna be this film meets that film," and I'm like, "All right, I'm going to sleep." Like I already, you already lost me. Like if they were both, if it's made of two films that were already made, then I don't care. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't really do that that much. I kind of really feel like. The world is so incredibly rich of, of metaphors and experiences, and um, I value those and kind of usually rather say that. Although, I mean, of course, if there's something really specific where you're like, you know, I really love how, I don't know, but yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't go there often. I think I've not educated enough to, in, in film to do that. <laughs> <laughs> to my detriment. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Um, I, I do work with a lot of references, um, you know, both at the beginning and and uh, and and then later. You know, and I and I record a lot of stuff. You know, if I just hear a sound I like, yeah, that I do. Life, I just try to record it and put it in a folder. And maybe I'm going to need to use this to communicate at some point. But mm -hmm. um, you know, and and. Yeah, so so I, I think that you can have like a library. I'm the same. I, I, I tend, it tends not to be like, oh, this sound design of this movie, but just sounds in nature, you know, um, sp specifically in Wendy, obviously, it was a huge thing, um, you know, and like what we were going to build these sounds out of. You know, a lot of times I also, I, I like to use the same sounds for a lot of different things in the film, you know, even if it's sort of buried yeah. in the ether. So it's like something, like, like an example where we were stuck, you know, and when he was just like the mother and, and just nature and the train, everything feeling too cold and, and not, huh. it had to, it had to feel in, in Wendy, like there's this idea that um, motherhood is the superpower and this like maternalistic strength, you know, that we were trying to communicate and we weren't getting this feel of like care for some reason from a lot of these sounds. And so we, we started looking at like baby, animals and mother animals communicating and like in you know and it was like remember there was a baby harp seal video on youtube that i found of this like baby seal <laughs> someone just like shot on their iphone and it's like that and i slowed that down and i brought that in and like that that's was so cool that's the kind like, of stuff i get most inspired by that kind of work that's amazing to hear yeah so much better than saying like hey i really love the sound and like seven <laughs> i don't know <laughs> 
it's like the world, you know, trying to yeah. hear the world and, and, and put it to your use, you know. Okay, great. So we have a question I'm going to combine because they're quite similar from Colby and Ivy. Um, essentially, how can you get good design on a minimal budget? And is there a website or organization that you can work with to find affordable sound designers? I'll just say that I have an organization. It's a nonprofit called Free the Work. Um, you can go to, I'm going to plug it here shamelessly, freethework.com. We're in 21 countries and we work to have um, more uh, underrepresented, actually, filmmakers who have less sometimes resources and opportunity. And um, we give, when you join us, you, you give, we give a lot of, um, things that in, in support of the filmmaking including lenses and cameras and sound and, and things like that and hopefully one day we'll have a Dolby partnership too gonna say that here um, so yeah that's what I that's my part that's that's what I do my side of the street so that was not a shameless plug I had a note to myself that I was gonna ask you about free the work and about the important things that you're doing there um, on but but so uh, I thought that Free the Work was really about directors and cinematographers, but you, oh. you, you've got sound have, folks on there as well? Oh, we have editors, we have script writers, we have sound editors, we have animators, um, we have composers. Um, yeah, and they all kind of, um, it became like a very, you know, rich kind of database now because we're also, we started as just women when it was like in, in the advertising world three years ago, but now it's really people of color and, um, you know, the whole LGBTQI community, IA, and so really uh, people with disability, and we really try to kind of touch upon all of the, all of the um, aspects of production that we can in the database that can be featured. Okay, so we'll move on to people here love free the work. That's they cool. do, yeah, the chat is, is blowing up over that. <laughs> Um, let's move to Dave's question, which is actually pretty interesting. Do you take your sound mixer on location scouting with you? Hmm. Um, yes, I do. Um, but I don't know that you would always need to, but I think in particular circumstances, you know, uh, this is pretty specific to like extreme locations, but like, you know, I think that everyone needed to, on my film, figure out how to do their job safely and you had to see what you were getting into before you showed up there, you know, um, and just, you know, we, we also have a lot, like the way that I'm shooting a lot of times I'm trying to have an almost 360 field of vision, which is to say like, there can't be tents, there can't be people all over the place. Like we we're, we're trying to allow our actors to really move freely through a space. And so just being strategic about where everyone's going to be, uh, behind the camera, where they're going to hide if they can't be behind the camera, um, is really, really useful in, in scheming a scene, you know, and making sure that you're not going to get there and then there's nowhere uh, for your, your sound mixer to capture the sound um, and, and, they have an, and, and can save you a ton of time. If you're able to, if you're able to bring them, it's, it's a huge resource. And then I think that's, I mean, I think that's also probably applies to, um, you know, even just complicated interiors, you know, uh, like our diner had a train outside of it. There was going to be 27 people. We, we only had this many mics. Where were we going to plant them? So all, all that planning and scheming um, was really, really fundamental uh, to, to have 
to have sound on the tech scouts and um, to have them have a strategy and a plan um, before they before they get there. If you can do it, yeah, you know, like Glenn said, it's like it's 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 your, you know, all, all your designers, you know, um, your cinematographer. It's everyone's got the same job. There's for some reason a whole status thing within that, but every single person who's kind of the creative uh, head of a department, um, you want, you want to collaborate with and, and you could best collaborate with them if they're there uh, when you're making your plan. Yeah. And if, if I could just tell one uh, quick story, um, uh, I did a program with Ryan Coogler several years ago and we talked about Fruitvale station and, you know, that was his first feature film, but he was wise enough to not only have, uh, figured out who he wanted to do the sound design before he shot the film, but then he invited them to come on set and they, uh, the, 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 the sound team came in and they realized that the, the trains in Oakland were going to be a really important character in that film. And so they just ran around Oakland, kind of not part of the shooting unit, but separate from them and get it. And they, and they just spent several days getting ambiences and the, and the sounds of those trains that they knew that they would use later on in the edit of the film. We did that too on Honey Boy, like definitely like had like sounds of, uh, and worked with, you know, Brent at, in advance and he came to the set and just kind of started to build like a library of all the sounds we want from the hotel and the motel and like right. so came into the sound mix. We had like kind of libraries of, of sound that we created in our locations. Um, constantly. Great. So I had a really great question. It might actually be better for Glenn to answer because you have such a rich background yourself as a sign designer specifically. But um, I had a question from Krishnan uh, who says, do you have any just basic general good tips for budding sound designers? always have a recorder with you. And now it's easy because you can just do everything on your phone. So just always be ready to capture interesting sounds. And that's, you know, when you talk, when you listen to sort of the, the great sound designers about how they make sounds and, and inevitably, and Ben kind of alluded to this in The Sound of Mother, um, we don't really have the equivalent of CGI in the sound industry. The, the human ear doesn't really accept synthetic computer generated sound as the real thing. So even if you've got like a dinosaur or, you know, a fantastic mother creature uh, that powers these children on the island as Ben did, if you talk to the sound designers, all the component sounds that, that go into the sound design of those creatures, they're all real world elements. They're animals, they might, you know, different kinds of tones and creaks and things that, but they, they're all organic and they all exist in the real world. So the real, the real great art comes from combining different kinds of elements and creating a new sound. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the dirty little trick of, of sound designers is pitch it down and run it backwards and it's a whole new thing. <laughs> ben, any tips that you'd share with someone kind of on the budding side of, of sound design? Um, I mean, I'm not a sound designer, so yeah. I think that, I mean, I think, to, to be at the, it's, it's such a closed, small world, you know, um, which is a huge frustration for me. And, and I think that um, it's cool, it's cool to be able to work that you're doing on, uh, on this, but like, I just think that there's so many, there's so many people starting off that just don't have a sound designer, don't know where to find one. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, like, 
I, I mean, one, one great example isn't is my film, but a film that I did a score for um, my friend Jonas Carpignano, who um, works in Southern Italy, you know, uh, you know, and this is, this is true of how my team sort of started too. It, it was not like any of us knew what we were doing when we started off and we kind of just were like, oh, we're going to make a movie. You be the producer, I'll be the director, you be the cinematographer. You know, no one knew that you start <laughs> off and then you become that by doing it, you know? And I think that, um, you know, I think that just, I think that it's one really, one thing I really value in making my own films is, is the people who I've had who are part of a team that come with me from film to film and we all get better and we form a language together. So I think that like, you know, um, finding a pair, finding a, finding directors, whatever it is, cinematographers, other creative people that you feel like you can really communicate with and sort of building those teams can, can lead to, you know, you, you make better films that way and you build a sort of life in a world um, in a filmmaking group, you know? And um, so I think, and I think that there's a huge lack of sound designers uh, in, the, in that early part of the process. Lots of people that want to be directors and writers and producers um, and cinematographers and not a lot of people that are starting off wanting to do sound. So I think you can find those teams and cultivate them for your whole life, you know? Great, thank you for tackling that question from, from that angle. That was really, really helpful. Alma, so I have a question from Clarence. Did you find that working in music videos helped you in thinking about how sound affected visuals and vice versa? And did that help your approach to sound and music for Honey Boy? Um, yeah, I mean, I think like anything, anything it just shapes, I guess, who you are, I think as a filmmaker, it could be like, um, you know, from doing things that are really unrelated um, in your life, like volunteering with children, which is something I did for a while um, with children that were taken from their homes um, into foster families and were had to be like in a shelter for a while. And it's not a, it's not, it's, it's not a, um, I guess, like a, a craft, but it's something that definitely have given me a real window and a connection to children that that are isolated or they come from broken homes um, and and allowed my background as a child to kind of come to the front. So um, to borrow from that far away metaphor, same thing with like um, music videos and music. Before I did music videos, I did um, this thing called VJing, which is like you kind of like you know, lively in a live show sort of mix like all these videos you filmed and there's like a live performance on stage and music. And I think just this ability to look at music and sound as something that is very alive and is so inherent to what we experience when we look at visuals and not really see it like separate, but just see it as like, it's, it's like when you have a great song, it's not necessarily that the words are great or that the music is great. It's like how they work together. And a lot of times, same thing when we see like film, like obviously the, the script is so valued. Obviously the performances, if we didn't have them, nothing would work. But at the end of the day, when something is really gives you this round rich feeling that it's sort of coming out of the screen to you and you can really feel it so much of it has to do with the music and the sound and it's really sometimes actually my favorite part because the, the editing for me is such an erotic nerve-wracking I guess process where you realize what you have 
and you have to sort of make something out of it and face your failures and, and your, you know, but in the sound, you get to the sound, uh, hopefully with a cut that you love and you just get to love on it. You get to really love on it. You get to really, you know, make it pop and, and give it anything that outside of the frame and, and celebrate all the emotional kind of undercurrents that maybe are not on the screen but have to be there to to create the mood that you want so i mean i think like making music videos is a, is a, is an amazing way to fall in love with with music you know because you get to see how you can infuse you know a visual with meaning uh, by juxtapositioning it with certain music and the the strong powerful effect that it has on 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 it so of course like i said anything you do is going to be part of you but if you get to work with music and music videos i'm sure it will be beneficial at some point wanted to jump into i i've always i was never anything close to a professional dj but i used to dj a lot of parties and i found that to be like one of the most valuable parallel experience like skill sets to to any part of the process in film. It's like this sort of sub, like this reading of a room as you think about your audience and like when they need to be rocked and when they need to be- Striving for ecstasy and then- you No, know? like, and it's like just managing that energy and trying to build towards like, there's some song you wanna play the peak of a party, you know? And, but you can't <laughs> just play it. You gotta play it. You gotta set it up and it's like- You gotta get there. You gotta get there and there's all this sort of architecture to the energy that you're trying to take people on experience of. And, and I would say that um, that's oh. really, really, that, that's one of the most difficult things to crack in sound design, I think, is like, once you get past just getting every scene to have the sounds that you want in it on an isolated uh, level, it's like how a sound design flows and how like it, it's really hard to articulate, but like. Yeah, but you said the architecture of the, the energy. So yeah. what you said. Yeah, like we, we, our first few passes on Wendy just were like, I, it was hard to say why, but you'd watch the film and you just would feel so bad. You know, he was like, I just got violated. I got overwhelmed. You know, it just was, I just felt attacked, you know? And it's like, then how you thin that energy out. Like I would think back on well, what song would I play right now when I really need people to keep dancing, but like they got to catch their breath. It's like that sort of stuff uh, somehow translates really well to like the big picture of a sound design, I think. Ben, I wanted to follow up on that because I remember something that you told me one time when we were talking, when you were making the film that, and I had to put a little plug in here. For both of you, this was your first time working with Dolby Atmos, but Ben, you said that Dolby Atmos actually kind of helped you in terms of creating space. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, for both of you, what was, what was having access to that technology like and how did it change the film? Um, sure. Yeah, I think I, I think about this metaphor. I think it's the same one I used before, but um, I'm, I have a very messy room. <laughs> so, so like, I remember, like, my clothes are always like all on the floor, you know, and then it takes me a really long time to like, find them and figure out what's clean. But like, I thought about the Dolby thing is like, when you, when you have shelves, you know, it's like, oh, I can see everything, you know, it's the same stuff. But now I can see where the socks are, and I can see where the pants are. And I can like, very quickly look at this and understand it all, you know? Um, like there's something like that, that, that the technology does, that's really, really cool. Um, and especially for something when you're, we were trying to do so much in the sound at every given moment, there was dialogue, music, 
effects, like everything was always, we needed all of it, you know, in order to get the film to tie together. And uh, before we had that, it, 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 it felt overwhelming. It felt clogged. And, and it's sort of that feeling of just feeling like, can someone please turn the volume down? You know, it's this mm-hmm. hurts, you know, it's, but it wasn't because it was too loud. It's because it was too much information. It was like when you're, it's like when you're a car drives by playing one song and there's a block party at the same time. And it's just like really anxiety inducing. Right. So it's like, uh, you know, that just ability to spread it out. Um, Cause there's so many more speakers and there's so many more layers and you can hear more without it being louder, um, without having to turn things down it can stay the same volume, but, you can just see it all separately. And um, there's just a lot more information you can get at every given moment uh, using it. That, that, that's what, that was the real liberating thing for me, um, mixing Wendy. Yeah, there's like a visual component to, to Atmos sound, I guess, that um, I haven't experienced before. What do you like call those little- What do you call you talk about the balls? Yeah. The little the balls? balls. They just called the balls. I thought there's a name. That's what we called them. But that's uh, what we yeah. called them. Yeah. The balls. Don't look at the balls too much, because like get get caught up in the balls. What so, Alma What Alma's talking about is Atmos. Yeah, Atmos allows you to look at the 3D space of the theater and actually take the sounds and move them around in the space, and they're represented by little balls. So it's unbelievable. It's such an amazing trip to see like. Especially like, I, you know, I obviously, our film didn't have like 90 channels of sound, like some of those, uh, the name, the, can you remind me the name of our mixer who I loved so much? Uh, oh, uh, you're talking about uh, Will Files. Yes, Will, what a, what a mensch. So he, he did, uh, just before that, what did he do? Like one of those monster... Uh, he did Invisible Man, and right now he's working on Ghostbusters. So he works on he pretty did, like big photos, yeah. films, and like that, you know, are my nightmare basically. Like <laughs> where people are just like spending years with green screens, and then they have like ninety soundtracks, and they got to figure out if this missile is like in the back or it's only in the front, and like all those things. So those balls, those fucking balls, you just see the whole room, and man, I got caught up in them easily especially that first scene i was having so much fun it's really amazing how much fun some of these dudes have blowing up shit all the time and now some women too but like uh so yeah the the atmos like just the spatial thinking of of sound and seeing it as a 3d space is is definitely very exciting i would say and um for those who use it for such big scenes, but also for me, it was just like so amazing sometimes to kind of play with like soundscapes for a dream sequence, for instance. And I mean, Ben's film, the whole thing is a dream sequence, I would say. So it's like, he probably had so much fun, but, uh, but for me, there were like a few areas that were just really important to kind of, you know, create a surreal environment in the sound and really figure out if, if like the chicken sound would be like from the back or from the front and how it's going to like work with the music. And that was really something that we didn't talk a lot about today, but Alex Somers was in there with us and I really appreciated it. He let me get everything in stems because, you know, you uh, I, I don't write my music as Ben does. So like having stems of the music and being able to really tuck the music and certain instruments in, in, in a certain 
place in the room and inside the the sound mix and make it all be like this one beautiful thing was uh was was really uh so exciting i i couldn't get more excited when i when i went to the sound mix this this movie I can attest. I saw. I, I was on. I was on the mixing stage with you at a little bit at the end. You were. Oh, you were very happy. You were very excited. Uh, I was like a kid. I was, it was so much fun. Well, we're at time already. I can't believe it. Um, Glenn, did you have a final question or thought that you wanted to put out there, or shall we wrap? Uh, no, I just, I just really want to express my gratitude to Alma and Ben. Uh, you guys have been great partners. It was really fun working with oh. you on these films. It, it just, you know, you, one of the things that we, that we love about creating technology about like this is just putting it in the hands of artists and let them run wild and see what the hell they're going to do with it. And you, you guys always surprised and delighted us with how you handled the sound on your films. And it was just a, it was a great, it was a great honor for me to get to work with you guys on these films. God damn! Thank you, man. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> you saved our, you saved my ass. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. Man. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna wrap for us here. But thank you all so, so, so much for joining us. A huge thank you to Glenn, to Alma, to Ben for being so generous with your time and knowledge today. And thank you to our friends at the Dolby Institute for partnering with Sundance Collab to make today's event possible. We hope the discussion was helpful to you. Uh, please keep an eye out for our newsletter and on the Collab website for the most up-to-date information on resources and events so that we can continue to support you uh, wherever you might be in the world. So until then, we'll see you back here soon. Please be safe, be well, be healthy, stay creative. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye, everyone. Love you. Bye. Thank you. <laughs>